Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History, brought to you by the support of listeners like you. If you value this content, please become a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. We say it every episode because we really mean it. Thank you to our supporters. We really couldn't keep doing this without you. Yes, thank you sincerely. And those of you who have considered becoming supporters or have told us, hey, I'm going to do that, consider it harder. And, you know, here's your sign. Get on it. We'd love to make these on a more consistent basis, but we need more support to make that happen. Well, yes. And um, if you're not yet a supporter, look us up on Locals or Patreon to see our support levels and the perks we offer. Get details at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also, thank you for the reviews you leave on Apple and especially those five-star ratings. They let Apple know that this is a great podcast and that more people should find it. Yes, indeed. So all that said, on with the show. Yes, today we're talking about Andy Warhol, who was among the most significant artists of the 20th century. Now, we're not claiming that his art always made a positive impact, just that in terms of overall impact, good or otherwise, it's hard to argue that any other 20th century artist was more influential than Warhol. Right. He was one of the main movers of the pop art movement of the middle and late part of the 20th century, and his use of colors plus his use of commercial logos and packaging, pop culture, images, and icons, it really heralded something new in art. He also was known for how ardently he chased fame and notoriety. His own fame, plus being near and associated with other famous people. Doesn't sound like a description of a good Catholic boy. Well, we're not saying he was a good Catholic boy. He was Catholic, and his Catholic faith was an important part of his life until his dying day. But it certainly didn't shine through all of his lifestyle. Yeah, no, his lifestyle. (sighs) Yeah, his lifestyle was, well, um, to use a word you like, fraught in many ways. Yes. Yeah. And actually, his story reminds me of another God-haunted artist who we talked about, Jack Kerouac. There are parallels, a devoted Catholic mother, trouble with his father, obvious talent for the arts, a desire to break the norms and chase pleasures, but a deep-seated Catholicism that just sort of undergirded everything. It is an interesting thing about Catholic artists. So, Let's get into all of that as we tell Andy Warhol's story. Yeah, that sounds good. So Andy Warhol was born Andrew Varhola Jr. on August 6, 1928. He was the youngest of his parents' four children. The eldest, the only daughter, died in infancy. Andrew and his two brothers, Paul and John, grew up in the Oakland neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Their parents, Andre and Julia Warhola, were immigrants from what is now northeastern Slovakia. They were both devout Byzantine Catholics, and they raised their children in that tradition. They attended the Divine Liturgy every Sunday, walking to St. John Chrysostom Church in the Ruska Dolina neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Anyone who has driven through Pittsburgh on I-376 has seen this church. If you're driving east on 376, away from downtown, just a little ways before you get to the Squirrel Hill Tunnel, you pass a valley with a neighborhood and a large light brown brick church that's facing 376, topped with onion domes and three bar crosses. 
That's the one. Anyhow, Andrew was impressed, as I'm sure were hundreds or thousands of other youths, by the enormous iconostasis or icon screen which separates the congregation from the sanctuary. St. John Chrysostom has a very high ceiling, and its iconostasis is massive, with nearly four dozen different icons within it. From a young age, he also endured several severe illnesses. Among them was Sydenham's chorea, or St. Vitus's dance, which is a neurological disorder that causes involuntary movements all over the body. This chorea may have been a side effect of scarlet fever because for the rest of his life, he suffered from skin discoloration and blotchiness, both of which can be side effects of scarlet fever. But due to these illnesses, he was home and bedridden a lot as a child. His mother would bring him comic books, paper, and drawing implements. He also would listen to the radio and collect magazine clippings of famous people. Developing an interest in pop culture and the cult of fame at an early age. Yeah, really. His father, who was a laborer, some say construction worker, some say coal miner, he may honestly have been both at different points, recognized Andy's Andrew's interest and talent for illustration and began to set aside money to pay for Andrew to go to college for art. Unfortunately, Andre died in an accident when Andrew was just 13. Before he died, he charged his second son, John, who was three years older than Andrew, to make sure Andrew got a college education. He told John to do this for Andrew because he's going to be successful someday. Prescient, even if Andre may not have appreciated the sort of success that Andrew eventually found. But John heeded his father's dying words. The money Andre had saved helped pay for enrollment at the Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, where Andrew studied commercial art. While in college, he made one of the great breakthroughs that propelled his later career. He developed a technique of blotted line ink drawing, which allowed him to make multiple images that were basically the same, but, you know, allowed him to make variations on that theme. He could mass produce images with minor variations. And if you know Andy Warhol's work, you know this was an important moment in his career. After college, he moved to New York, and this is where his art and, um, well lifestyle took off. Yes, but one of his first moves was to change his name slightly. Rather than Andrew Varhola, he simplified it to Andy Warhol. Warhol became an illustrator and designer. His success came rapidly. In short order, he had his own studio and his own gallery shows. Through the 1950s, his fame grew, and then in the 1960s, he was everywhere. He was producing pieces of art at a prodigious pace. Everything from drawings to paintings to silkscreen prints to films. His subject matter included product packaging, like his famous Prince of Camel's soup cans and a stack of Brillo boxes. But he also engaged in explorations of the human body and its movements, including exhibitions of performance art and some very unsavory, immoral films. Yeah, we're not going into any detail about these things. We're not going to talk about it because, well, we want this to be a family-friendly podcast. His art rebelled against classical forms, accentuated the shallowness he saw in commercialism and pop culture, and reveled in the mundane and perverse. But in a way, it seems his art and lifestyle were an aggressive outlet for his own inner tension. Yeah, so inner tension. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, and again, keeping this family friendly, that there was, he had this very public homosexuality. Now, we must note that he insisted to his dying day that he never once personally engaged in sexual activity, and his closest associates 
back up this claim. But his art and what he personally produced show that perversity was not foreign to him. Sex, drugs, and all manner of experimentation, it was happening all around him, in his studio, among his friends and associates. He encouraged it and he recorded it. He was a fixture at notorious nightclubs like Studio 54. He was often in attendance at the swankiest and most important parties, outfitted in his trademark clear plastic frame glasses and platinum blonde wig. And when he wasn't invited, he found out who was invited instead of him and would hold it against them. Yes, friends say he could be vindictive and backbiting when things didn't go his way. But this public persona of hedonism and grasping was very different from the struggle that was going on inside. For, for one, no one but a very few close friends knew that he remained, well, a virgin throughout his life. For another, everyone was shocked to find out that he continued praying and going to church. Right. He hadn't left his family and his religion behind him in Pittsburgh. He had his mother come to live with him in 1951, and she stayed with him until her death in 1971. His mother, again a devout Byzantine Catholic throughout her life, undoubtedly prayed ardently for her son and exhorted him to amend his ways. His ways did change a few years before she died. In 1968, Warhol was shot at point-blank range by a deranged radical feminist who had tried to sell him a script for a film. He declined to purchase it. She shot him in the abdomen. He nearly died, but multiple surgeries and weeks in the hospital saved his life. However, the bullet had damaged seven organs, including his lungs, stomach, liver, spleen, and gallbladder. He was forced to wear a corset for the rest of his life to keep all of his organs in the right place. He recalled later pledging to God that if he survived, he would go to church more regularly. And so he did. Some accounts say he went daily but he certainly would go often and at least every Sunday. He didn't always go for Mass, and when he did go to Mass, he did not receive communion. He respected the sacrament too much for that. But he would stop in frequently at St. Vincent Ferrer on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan's Upper East Side, which was near his townhouse. St. Vincent Ferrer is the headquarters of the Eastern Province of the Dominican Friars in the U.S., and it is a absolutely beautiful church. We had the opportunity to visit it when we were in New York last December, and I can understand why he would want to spend time there. Oh yeah, it is gorgeous and so peaceful. But it's also the architectural and artistic opposite of St. John Chrysostom. St. John is Romanesque, and it is bright and airy inside with brightly colored icons. St. Vincent is Gothic with dark stone and stained glass and a much more close, intimate feel. Both are sacred and impressive in their own way, but you're right, very different. Yeah, and it was to St. Vincent that he repaired often in these years. He spoke often with a pastor who recalled those conversations fondly. At his home, he kept a rosary and a book of prayers by his bedside, and he had a little altar dedicated to the Blessed Mother. In his diary, published shortly after his death, the most common activity recorded from day to day was went to church. Publicly, he was still Andy Warhol, grasping at the next 15 <clears throat> minutes of fame, basically making fun of pop culture, holding up a mirror to the world and showing it how ridiculous its commercialism, idolatry, and pursuit of the next easy sensual experience was. But interiorly, there was a great battle going on. His mother always insisted that he was a good religious boy. 
An associate who did not think the same thing was surprised to find out she was somewhat right. When that associate accompanied Warhol to Mexico City, they visited the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. In his book, the associate reported that Warhol took holy water, genuflected, made the sign of the cross, knelt and prayed. The associate realized at that moment that the religious convictions deep down inside Warhol were not an act or a spectacle like everything else in his life. The religious sense still held meaning and importance to him. Perhaps a less obvious sign of the lingering importance of his Catholicism was the company he kept. Yes, he was surrounded by hedonists and pleasure seekers, but among those whom he hired and specifically chose to keep near him, the vast majority were Catholics, lapsed Catholics, but Catholics. One of his friends who noted this thought it was due to a shared history, priests, nuns, the liturgy, and even that sense of guilt. Also, his nephews reported that when they would visit him in New York, he would insist that they kneel and pray before leaving the house, a practice he retained from his mother and his childhood. In fact, he and his brother John kept up a regular communications. They spoke on the phone weekly, according to John. Perhaps the most important moment for Warhol as a Catholic came in 1980. He traveled to Rome where he participated in a general audience of Pope John Paul II. John Paul had only been Pope for about 18 months at this point, and Warhol wanted to do a series of portraits of him, like those he'd done of Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, and Mao Zedong. But... All that happened was an opportunity to speak briefly with the Polish pontiff as he went along the front row. But that moment is an interesting one. Warhol dressed up neatly that day, more neatly than he normally did, including a staid white shirt and a striped tie, along with a more subdued version of his platinum blonde wig. The brief exchange between Warhol and the Pope was captured in multiple photos. Warhol is holding a camera with which he had already taken a photo of the Pope. But in this moment, they exchange a few words. The Pope grips Warhol's hand warmly and strongly. Warhol is looking at the Pope, an artist and a cultural icon in his own right, with a sense of care and interest that was more than just meeting another celebrity. There, there really did seem to be something in that moment for Warhol. He never did execute the set of silkscreen portraits of John Paul II. It's not like he couldn't have done one from a photo like he'd done with the portraits of Mao, Marilyn, and Elvis. So maybe the reason he didn't had more to do with a deep and real respect for John Paul II that he just didn't have for those others. Maybe his inner sense of what is good and what is banal held the saintly pontiff as something more sacred that should not be abused or held up to spectacle. Yeah, and this gets to a deep question of why in Warhol's life and art. He had these tensions between knowing that the Catholic thing was important, but he could not bring himself to live that life. He knew the importance of the image. He had spent countless hours staring at that massive iconostasis of St. John Chrysostom. One thought is that his pop art was sort of an anti-iconography. He saw sacred religious art as providing a window into the sacred, reminding the believer of what they truly believe to be sacred and of ultimate importance. Well, he sort of turned that around on pop culture and crass commercialism and more or less made icons of the idols of modern society, celebrities, the packaging of popular products, fashionable political leaders. And rather than saying, here is an image that will remind you of the true greatness of this saint or the magnificence of the Godhead, he's saying, here is your God made in your own image and likeness. Isn't it ridiculous? 
Yeah, you know, it's just my thought. But given that tension between his deep Catholic roots and his 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 observation of the power of icons juxtaposed against the sort of art he produced with crass commercialism and idol worship spread all over the canvas, I don't know. You know, I'm just not sure how else to explain it. And there was that other art, the purely observational pieces, the films of people living their lives in different ways or just sleeping, the eight-hour film of sunrises and sunsets, the films of the people who came to the parties at his studio, the drawings of nudes. So there was also a strain of simply capturing nature and life as it is and showing it back to the world. Yeah, and the effect of those could be calming as with the sunrises and sunsets or jarring and uncomfortable as when people viewed the six-hour film of a man sleeping or of unsavory behavior taking place at his parties. But his art included more obviously religious themes after he was shot in 1968. Among the subjects chosen, he painted a series of skulls more or less like the memento mori of Renaissance art. And then in 1984, he accepted a commission to do a series of paintings based on Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, The Last Supper. Warhol did nearly 100 variations on the famous painting, including some that used well-known corporate logos to make a point. In one, he used the Dove Soap logo to imply the Holy Spirit, along with the GE logo to imply that Jesus is the light of the world. In another, the Wise Snack Foods logo is included, associating Jesus with wisdom. In many of them, the entire image is rendered in black with various colors filling in the white space. A bunch of them are details of Jesus or groups of the apostles colored in in different ways. The body of the work debuted at a gallery in Milan that is directly across the street from the monastery where da Vinci's original resides. The series far exceeded the expectations of its patron. He thought it denoted an obsession with the image of Christ at dinner with his friends on the night before he died. It caused quite a stir, as could be expected, and it proved to be the last thing that Warhol did. During the stay in Italy, his health began to decline. His gallbladder, damaged by the bullet in 1968, became infected and needed to be removed. But he had a fear of doctors and hospitals, so he waited to return to New York for the operation. The procedure itself was a success, and his health initially seemed to improve. But just days after, his heart gave out, and he died of cardiac arrest on February 22, 1987, at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He was only 58. His two brothers, Paul and John, brought his body back to Pittsburgh, where he had a Catholic funeral at Holy Ghost Byzantine Catholic Church. Afterward, he was buried near his parents in St. John the Baptist Cemetery in Bethel Park. On April 1st, 1987, a memorial mass, attended by thousands, was held at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. In his will, he named his brother John as one of the trustees of his estate, setting up the Andy Warhol Foundation dedicated to preserving and carrying on his work. John remained on the board for two decades, helping to set up the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, as well as one in the area of Slovakia, where their parents came from. Warhol's art remains some of the most immediately recognizable of all American art. If you ever fly through the Pittsburgh airport, you'll be hard-pressed not to see some reproductions of his works, including 
brightly colored donuts, Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, and other works. The Andy Warhol Museum on Pittsburgh's north side houses the largest collection of his works in the world and is the largest museum dedicated to one artist in North America. There's even the Andy Warhol effect within Photoshop if you want that garish look to emphasize your photos. Warhol's impact on art and the way graphic designers and illustrators approach their work really can't be overstated. But was it all for the good? What among his output is truly good art, and how much was he just aggressively ridiculing what he saw as a shallow, crass culture unmoored from what is really important? In that case, you know, buyer beware. He was some kind of Andy Kaufman before Andy Kaufman, but unlike Kaufman's absurdities, the world looked at Warhol and said, yes, I want that. There's no sugarcoating the problems with his public life. We sort of glossed over them. Yeah, a lot of them. (laughs) He participated in and encouraged many immoral behaviors in others. But before his end, he seemed to be having second thoughts deep down about what was really important. We talked about Jack Kerouac at the opening of this episode. Kerouac died even younger than Warhol, just 47. But his life did return more or less to stability and faith. Warhol lived to 58, which is still young. But who knows? Maybe if he'd lived longer, he would have returned more fully to the faith of his parents. All we can do is pray for his soul and consider the message his pop art has for us today. This has been American Catholic History. If you enjoy American Catholic History, please become a supporter. We've got great perks for supporters. Get information on how to become a supporter and the perks at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Andy Warhol, plus see about our pilgrimages and find other great stories from American Catholic history. We also love the great reviews our listeners leave. Those and the five-star ratings help others find us. You can also email us feedback, questions, tips for episode topics, and other comments and feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, and follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, made possible by listeners like you.